Healthcare Real Estate Advisor podcast. I'm Joel Swider, a healthcare real estate attorney with Hall Render. And for today's episode, we're going to listen in on a webinar put on by my colleague Jeremy Ullum and I, which aired in September 2019 on Opportunity Zones and other healthcare financing tools. Thanks, Joel. We want to, uh, first of all, today thank the Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio Hospital Associations for having us, and we look forward to talking with everyone. So there's been a lot of buzz about so-called qualified opportunity zones, but many of the hospitals that we work with haven't focused a lot of attention on how they can benefit from this program, at least not to date. So in today's webinar, we're going to answer at a high level three questions that frequently arise in the healthcare context when it comes to opportunity zones and the financing of, of hospital projects more generally. First, we'll look at what are opportunity zones, how do they work, and how can uh, both for-profit and non-profit providers benefit? Second, I think we're going to find that the Opportunity Zone program has a relatively narrow fact set uh, where it can be best utilized as a financing tool. So we're also going to look at what other tools and incentives are available to hospitals to fund new development projects and to drive complementary development within their markets. Finally, we'll look at some concrete action items surrounding the next steps for hospitals who are looking at how to get their projects off the ground. Um, Today's session is designed as kind of a lunch and learn. We should go about 30 minutes, but feel free to type in any questions in the chat box or email us offline. We're happy to make ourselves available uh, to answer any um, more in the weeds questions that you may have. So what are Opportunity Zones? Opportunity Zones were conceived by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, the TCJA. They were designed as a way to spur investment in distressed communities by providing tax incentives for taxpayers who invest capital gains into certain geographic regions. Um, As authorized under the TCJA, state governors were the ones who originally designated these zones, over 8,700 of them, um, and the IRS then later approved those. They're in all 50 states, the District of Columbia, as well as five U.S. territories. And this slide shows just an overview of where the Opportunity Zones can be found. At least this is a a view of the continental U.S. Um, And there is an official government map, uh, which we have a link to that on our website, where you can zoom in. There's third-party maps as well. Um, You can zoom in and find the area where your hospital or health, health system is located. Um, And you can tell just from looking at this map at a high level that there are a lot of zones located in and around large cities, but they're also in a lot of rural areas, especially if you look out west. Um, So because it's up to state governors to to designate these zones, the state had some latitude as to where they're located. So you might be, be interested to find whether you're in one or near one. So how do Opportunity Zones work? Um, so I'm going to go through this slide and the next in, in, uh, at kind of a high level, and I've used some numbers in here just as an example, the dates as well, um, just as an example so that you can see how this might work in practice. Um, but I'll go through this just briefly so that you can see you know, whether or not you have a situation that might actually fit into the Opportunity Zone program uh, or, or not. So to start with, you'll have the sale of tangible property uh, and a gain that's been realized from that sale. So that's, uh, we're, I'm calling that investment number one because that's, that's from some you know, old investment. Now, uh, some hospitals you know, buy and sell property more um, frequently than others. 
um, and we'll get into how you might partner with a developer or other uh, capital partner who might have more gains that they can can deploy. Um, the so again these dates here, um, other than the time frames, are just for for example purposes. But um, with one date that's important is within 180 days of the sale of that initial property. You must invest that into that gain into a qualified opportunity fund. Um, so that could be all or a portion of that original gain, and I'm calling that investment number two. So that's that's a separate investment, and you'll see in a minute that, that it's treated slightly differently. Um, within two and a half years of that initial investment, investment number two, the opportunity fund has to purchase opportunity zone property. And that includes real estate, businesses, business assets, etc. And, and they must improve it by at least the value of the purchase price. So this fund is, is essentially a, a vehicle, an investment vehicle. It could be a partnership, uh, a multi-member LLC tax as a partnership, or it could be a corporation. But importantly, it has to invest at least 90% of its holdings in one or more opportunity zones. So, um, so now we're, you know, we've, we've, got the gains from the sale of our uh, initial property, invested it into the opportunity fund, we've put that money to work, and then after five years uh, in the fund, you will get a 10% increase in basis uh, on the initial gain. So going back to that initial amount that you invested from the first in, uh, uh, gain, um, you will get a, a basis step up of 10%, essentially that amount is, um, you know, the amount of the taxable gain goes down by 10%. Um, then if you hold that investment for another two years in year seven, you will get an additional 5% increase in basis or another step up uh, on that gain from the initial investment, investment number one. Uh, again, there's no gain recognized either in year five or year seven. Um, you're still continuing to defer those gains. Then in 12-31-2026, that is a hard date, um, there is a mandatory deferred gain recognition on that original capital gain from investment number one. So uh, that, that in, and so because of the timeframes here, I'll mention, um, you know, if you want to get the full 15% basis step up on that deferred gain, um, you need to really invest by 12-31-2019. Now, you can still invest later, um, uh, and, and qualify for the 10% basis step up if you hold it for five years, but obviously you couldn't, you could no longer hold it for seven years because of that 1231-2026 drop dead date. Um, then as to investment two, so going back to our, our opportunity zone investment, um, if you hold that investment for 10 years total, um, then any gain from that sale of the second investment is completely erased. You get a, a basis step up to fair market value. So as you'll see, I think, you know, if, if you can fit into it, it's a great program. And, and, and as I kind of talked about on the, on the previous slides, you know, you can get temporary deferral of gains. You get a step up in basis as to those gains, and you can get a permanent exclusion on taxable gains on, on, on the second investment. Um, so it can be a, a good program if you, if you qualify. Now, what happens if you're tax exempt? You say, look, I, I, I don't have any taxable gains. Um, I am, you know, charitable, I'm nonprofit and tax exempt. Um, well, how can this work for you? And so, so I think there still are some, some ways that you could leverage the Opportunity Zone program. 
One of which is, especially for hospitals that are located um, in the Opportunity Zone or near the border, and there's some specific rules that the IRS put out earlier this year with respect to those types of properties that span, that are partially in the zone, partially not, uh, which we can again talk about kind of offline if you, if, uh, if you have questions about that. But if you're on or near the zone, um, you could partner with a capital or development partner who is able to take advantage of, of the tax benefits. Um, and that could result in a lower cost of capital to you as a provider um, for the real estate or, or for other development projects. Another way that we've seen this work is that hospitals can attract for-profit investors to improve social determinants of health in the community. So we've seen a lot of focus in recent years uh, with our clients and, and other hospitals where they're looking at you know non-traditional healthcare investments it's really within their charitable purpose but what they're doing is you know they're investing in affordable housing they're putting grocery stores into sort of a food desert area um, and they're they're making non-traditional healthcare investments that really help improve the population health in the community as a whole and by so doing uh, you know achieve their mission um, so this is another way, and we'll get to an example of this in just a second, um, of how you might partner with a for-profit to, to provide some of those services. Um, another thing to think about when it comes to a tax-exempt provider is that a rising tide floats all boats. So what kinds of investments could you make that you know, are within your charitable purpose, uh, within that community, where the long-term value might actually end up, not as a direct result, but indirectly, um, you know, helping others who would be willing to invest in that community. So, for example, a hospital could pledge uh, community improvements in order to attract for-profit investors to the community, thereby improving social determinants and population health more broadly. So just we have three uh, quick examples here kind of illustrating what this can look like. Um, and I've got links to the, uh, if you want to find out more about each of these, I've not used the provider's names, um, but you can, you can look them up. The, um, there's a, an academic medical center on the East Coast, which collaborated with a for-profit pharmacy operator to open a new pharmacy and wellness store near the hospital's campus. Um, the store offers a variety of health services, daily living products, and health food options, and it also provides a health clinic that's staffed by nurse practitioners. So this is, again, in coordination with the hospital. Um, and so this actually came out a couple years before the Opportunity Zone program, but when we were looking at this, we thought, wow, you know, could we recreate this um, today and take advantage of the Opportunity Zone program? And I think you certainly could. Um, and so. For this example, you know, the for-profit pharmacy operator could, you know, defer, reduce their capital gains by investing in the zone, and the academic medical center could attract additional capital and development partners, which they have, um, that are able to utilize the program. So again, kind of a, a win-win for both parties. Another example here, this is in the Midwest, um, a large nonprofit Midwest health system partnered with a community development financial institution to help mobilize uh, loan and grant funding to revitalize underinvested communities. This was in the greater Toledo area. Um, the goals of that partnership included supporting and addressing social determinants of health 
job training opportunities, employment skills, education, and food security. And, and I've got a picture here of a grocery store that they, that they have built uh, in, in a food desert area. The amount of this investment was about $45 million. And again, here we see partnering with investors and asset managers that are looking, uh, that are, you know, who have capital gains exposure, they're looking for social impact investment opportunities. And both the investors and the health system can benefit in these types of arrangements. Um, so one, one other example um, that we're aware of is a large healthcare organization with the national footprint that it, it's a nonprofit integrated health system which created an investment fund that committed up to $200 million to target housing stability, homelessness, and other community needs. So they're approaching it, again, from a, from a little bit different angle, um, with the goal of preventing displacement of homelessness uh, or, or homelessness of low to middle income households in developing communities. They're also using it to promote access to supportive housing um, and helping to make homes more affordable. They're looking at environmental impact as well. And the, the tax savings here, you know, again, presents opportunities for those for-profit investors, um, and it also improves the quality of housing and improves the, the overall population health in the community, uh, which is important to, to the hospital. So, so I guess as we've seen in, 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 in this first portion of the presentation, there really can be substantial savings in investing in opportunity zones. If you're either a taxpayer, like a for-profit health system, um, but, you know, what about if you don't have, you know, you can't partner, you, the timing is wrong, what other options exist out there, particularly for, for nonprofit providers um, to take advantage of those? Jeremy? Sure. Thanks, Joel. Appreciate it. Yeah, so beyond opportunity zones, I mean, we've dealt for years with various economic development incentives and, and various models to, to get projects completed and get projects financed. So we thought it appropriate to maybe uh, look at a few of those. This is not an exhaustive uh, survey, but we'll highlight a few things that we see in the marketplace, uh, some of which have been around a long time and some of which are relatively new models. And, and the first thought is that there's really been a change, I think, in the last decade when folks think of healthcare as economic development. Uh, the conventional wisdom, and I think if you go back, you can find white papers and and journal articles and the like was that healthcare development would simply follow population. And so unlike manufacturing or technology or these other industries, there really was no reason to incentivize healthcare development in a given community. Uh, the healthcare providers would simply follow behind the rooftops and want to locate near them. I think we've seen a change in that because what we've seen is that healthcare can be a catalyst to an entire community. Uh, it can almost function like an anchor tenant does for a, a retail area, if you will. Oftentimes, healthcare providers are the first development in a new area. Um, we've also seen an increase in kind of competition for healthcare facilities. You know, for decades and decades, if a new manufacturing plant was being built, you would have multiple states vying for it to come to their state. Um, and healthcare was seen as, you know, not really in the same vein. We weren't exactly competing, you know, Wisconsin versus Alabama to see where we build our new hospital. Uh, but at the micro level, uh, location is a bit fungible. Whether we are in suburb A or suburb B, when they abut each other, uh, can have a big impact on the project as a whole. So we'll look at that. And then obviously, I think one thing that, I, that folks have always agreed on is that having quality providers in your community is, 
is important in attracting other economic development, much like having quality education in a community. Uh, you want to make your, your city or your town a place where folks want to live. Um, and before we leave this slide, I think one other objection that has been proffered throughout the years, particularly with respect to nonprofit providers, is, well, these guys don't pay property tax. Why would we ever want to provide any incentives or, or whatnot to attract them to our community? Part of that came out of this notion that, that property taxes were generally the tool available to local governments to provide economic development incentives. Um, and part of it came from this notion of, of viewing it, I think, a little too narrowly. So we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but if we look first, if we have a situation where maybe a healthcare development is really the catalyst in an area or an anchor tenant, if you will, the, this slide, uh, this is a live project. It's under construction right now, uh, but we've been through several variations of a very similar project. And in this instance, what happened is the health system acquired roughly 70 acres, right? They were going to develop 10 or 12 of the acres represented by the blue circle. Um, but they were going to put in the infrastructure and the utilities and the other things necessary for that entire area to develop. They wanted to play a role in the development of the full 70 acres. They wanted to control maybe how it was developed and what those ancillary uses were. So the healthcare system was kind of the initial catalyst. They were often uh, responsible for putting in a lot of the infrastructure. Um, and, uh, but that would lead to additional development. And what we've been able to successfully do in many of these instances is negotiate incentives with the local county, local city, uh, whereby uh, the TIF revenue, the tax increment revenue, which I'll explain shortly, uh, generated by these future additional uses would help offset those initial investments by the healthcare system. Um, at a micro level, location is fungible. This is a map I pulled up of the St. Louis, Missouri metropolitan area, not because we have a particular project here, but because I knew St. Louis is comprised of a gazillion municipalities. And if you look at this map, you see uh, all of these small uh, cities and towns that make up the metro area. If you're a healthcare system looking to locate in a metropolitan area like this, you know whether you locate in one uh, hamlet or village or suburb or the other might not be that critical. Uh, we've had lots of projects where our clients have looked at multiple sites, all within a very close proximity, uh, but all potentially within a different jurisdiction. Uh, some might be in an unincorporated area of the county, others might be in the incorporated limits of the city or the next suburb or city over. So oftentimes, um, you know, without being overly harsh or playing you know, hardball with all these communities, but you may well find a location or a community that is much more welcoming and willing to provide a lot more uh, in the way of incentives because they want your project, they want it to be the catalyst in their community. Uh, healthcare projects often come with a number of high wage jobs as states and communities around the country, I think there's a general shift from property tax reliance to income tax. Uh, I think that the location of the jobs rather than being on the tax rolls becomes much, much more important. And Jeremy, before you go on, I think one thing I would add there too is I think I mentioned with respect to Opportunity Zones that a lot of times the hospital is looking to expand its existing footprint, but especially if you're going into new markets, like you said, sure. I mean, it may not matter if it's a you know couple blocks away from this side or the other, and one may be in right. the zone, one not. Right. And we've had systems with, you know, we're going to build an orthopedic hospital, we're going to build an ancillary uh, center, an ambulatory surgery center, and it needs to be on the northwest side of the city, right? 
that could be in any one of two or three uh, jurisdictions. Um, so I mentioned TIF before, real briefly we'll, we'll overview because I think this is one, uh, particularly around the Midwest, that's used very, very frequently. Uh, TIF stands for Tax Increment Financing, and it is, as it sounds, uh, a structure where we capture the incremental taxes generated by a development or a project, and we can capture those funds and use them to help support that project or that development. Uh, oftentimes, the current property tax value is kind of locked in as the base assessed value, and any amounts beyond that become increment. It's a little easier to, to think about when you view it in, in graphically here. Uh, if we go from left to right along the, the time continuum, and then from north to south, or from south to north is the appraised value, you can see when we create the TIF area, we set the baseline of property values. The taxes associated with that baseline continue to flow where they were flowing before, to the schools, to the libraries, to the city, to the county, to all of the taxing districts. But the lighter blue triangle over time, that's the tax increment because what we've done at creation is we have built a new project or we've attracted additional investment to the area that's driven up the assessed value and therefore is generating more property taxes. That increment is captured and that increment can be used to finance uh, or to pay for portions of the development in the first instance. So if we go back to a couple slides ago to the map where the hospital's the anchor tenant, uh, that hospital is investing in the infrastructure in the area, but they intend to recoup that investment from future tax increment over time. So if they spend $5 million putting in roads and drainage and utilities, um, the arrangement with the town will provide that the future tax increment generated in the area will come back to the hospital as a way to recoup that investment. And then of course to the far right, once that TIF area ends, determined by state law, but typically 20, 25 years in most states, then obviously all of that increased value is just in the general tax base. So the big win for the city is this is increment we wouldn't otherwise have, so we're not giving up any of our base. And at some point in time, we're going to have the value of, of all of it after this uh, TIF area has run its course. Again, graphically, kind of how it works in practice, uh, you can see where the, the new development, if you will, in the, in the uh, graphic generates revenue that can be spent in the area. Most state laws restrict how that money can be spent. It has to be spent either in or connected to or in some states on uh, projects that benefit the area, the city can't simply capture TIF revenue and, and go off and do something wholly unrelated with it. This map just gives you a sense for how widespread uh, the use of, of TIF financing and, and tax increment as an incentive is. Uh, if you look particularly, uh, you know, we've got Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan associations on the line. Uh, you guys are squarely in the uh, upper echelon of TIF usage. Uh, we're resident in Indianapolis. I know there are literally thousands of TIF districts in the state of Indiana, and you can see kind of around the Midwest is a, is a, is a home to it. Uh, California and Texas also show up as, as being pretty significant users. So again, kind of the overview here is that there's been a shift over the last decade of healthcare from you know just something that follows population to really being an economic driver. And if you think about the modern healthcare campus, you can, you can see that readily. Uh, all the ancillary for-profit development, uh, all the hotels, long-term care, 
medical office buildings, et cetera, that are on the tax rolls that generate additional jobs, that bring additional people to the area, uh, that economic development story is usually a pretty easy one to, to put together. Two more thoughts here. Um, another phrase you might hear a lot about when you're looking at, at projects and project finance and economic development is P3, public-private partnerships. Um, I say here it could be P3, it could be four, five, six, seven. Uh, there's no magic to P3. Okay, I hate to burst um, all the consultants' bubble, but there's no magic around this phrase. All a P3 project is is multiple parties coming together to get something done, and typically those come from you know the public space and in terms of government. Uh, you might have private, for-profit, nonprofit. You might have all the above, and each of them often have different tools they can bring. Uh, they have different. Uh, access to capital, different, uh, you might have a city that owns some land that they want to contribute to a project. And so a P3 project is really nothing more than bringing together a group and seeing what each of them can offer to the project, what risk they're willing to take in the project uh, to collaborate and get the thing done. Um, I wish it were sexier than that, but that is really uh, what we're talking about in, in that arena. Uh, this is an example of one that we've worked on. Um, that is still in the planning uh, stages. Lots of boxes, lots of lines. Uh, this project was out in the western United States. It involved a healthcare system. It involved a new nonprofit that was being created. It involved the local community college. It involved the local city. Uh, and it also involved a private developer and then subsequently a private manager. And so all of them were coming together. Uh, the health system would brand the project. It would be built on its campus. The new nonprofit was going to serve as the owner of the project. They could finance that project with tax-exempt debt. They would likely get a property tax exemption as a nonprofit owner. Uh, the private developer was obviously going to build it and then they were going to manage the property on an ongoing basis. The host city was going to use the project in part for particularly for their first responders, their police and firefighters, and then the local community college. This was a wellness center. They wanted it to be available to their students. So we're able to cobble together all of these parties in a P5, not a P3 project, um, to try to put together a structure that worked and a credit that worked and an underlying cash flow that worked. So Jeremy, when somebody talks about like a, a you know, P3 or P5, I mean, you're saying that they could take really any number of, of forms yeah. in terms of... And in fairness, the three refers to the three P words, not the number of parties. I just like to say that because... Oftentimes, these projects involve many, many parties. Um, you know, if you think about them as, as kind of multi-ventures rather than joint ventures. Mm -hmm. um, my point is, there's nothing particularly sacred about P3, and I think people often hear that phrase and think there's some uh, magic to it, and it's really just about bringing the parties together and what can each add. Another model that we see gaining some traction is a nonprofit foundation, uh, nonprofit real estate foundation model. Some of you may have seen this, uh, may have heard about it recently. This is a model that's been around for a while in higher education. Uh, we've seen it with uh, student housing projects, with research facilities and the like, and we see that migrating to healthcare. We're working on our first two projects uh, with this model. Um, both of them in the southern United States, and it's really just an alternative to for-profit or developer or REIT ownership of a facility. So if you have facilities that maybe the health system doesn't want to own, uh, so they're looking to maybe have a developer or REIT or for-profit entity own those projects and lease them back to the health system, this would be one potential alternative to that. 
Um, you can almost view these entities as alternative landlords that are in the nonprofit space and maybe a little more aligned with the nonprofit mission of the healthcare providers. Um, very flexible, uh, by and large willing to structure and, and finance and, and put the project together in any way the health system would like because of their nonprofit mission to try to serve the health system rather than a for-profit mission to try to uh, enrich themselves. So this is one to keep an eye on. I'm sure we'll be getting some more information out there. If you have interest in this model, uh, my colleague Andrew Dick uh, did a podcast with uh, one of the players in this model recently, and you can, I'm sure, find that by searching Hall Render Podcast, Hall Render Real Estate Podcasts, and if, if all else fails, contact us and we'll make sure you get it. Um, and then because I can't resist boxes and lines, this was kind of what one of those nonprofit real estate foundation looks, uh, deals looked like. So not simple, but, but can be a very, very good alternative to some of the for-profit players in the real estate development industry. And with that, Joel, uh, we'll see if we have any questions that have come in. I don't believe we've seen any in the chat room, but if you have any beyond this, uh, feel free to contact myself or Joel or really anyone at Hall Render. Yeah, and special thanks again to the Indiana Hospital Association, the Michigan Health and Hospital Association, and the Ohio Hospital Association for inviting us, and uh, we hope to talk with you soon. Remember that the views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants only and do not constitute legal advice.